All right, good morning and welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Today we are going to be talking about the interesting topic of angels and demons. We've been studying the doctrine of God this semester, and so we talked about God himself over the past several weeks, and then recently we've been talking about God's creation, and so today we're going to talk about some of that creation being angels and demons. Now, The Bible mentions a bunch of things about angels and demons, but we don't get a lot of long, extended discourses on exactly everything we would want to know about angels. And I think that's intentional. I think that there's a tendency for us to be so overly interested in this area that God has not scratched that itch for us so that we can focus on more important things like Christ and the gospel. But the Bible does say quite a bit about angels and demons, and so we are going to talk about them today. Let's start with a definition. What are angels? What are angels? Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Let me read that again. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. God created a lot of things when he created the world. He created uh, stars and mountains and rhinoceroses or rhinocera, whatever. Some other animal I could have picked that I actually know the plural. Cats. Uh, He created all kinds of things, but he's only created two kinds of moral creatures, two kinds of rational, intelligent, moral creatures. Those are humans and angels, okay? And so today we're talking about angels. This study in theology, by the way, of angels and demons is called angelology, all right? Now, I know that sounds like we're just making up words, so a study of a tree is like treeology and the study of a chair is chairology. The Greek word for angel is actually angelos, right? So that angelology is actually based on a Greek root. The Greek word for angel is angelos, and it means messenger, all right, because angels oftentimes are messengers, but that's where we get the term angel. Now, angels are given many names in Scripture. They're called sons of God. Let me pause real quick on that one. That doesn't mean like Jesus. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, we mean he is eternally the second person of the Trinity and stands in the relationship of son to the Father, all right? So he is eternally the Son of God. When Scripture calls angels sons of God, it doesn't mean anything like that. It just means that they are created spiritual beings, all right? That's what sons of God means a lot of times with angels. So, or not a lot of times, that's what it means with angels. So they're called sons of God. They're called holy ones. They're called spirits. They're called hosts. They're called watchers. They're called dominions, principalities, authorities, heavenly hosts, and much more. But uh, that's what we are studying today angels. Now, in this definition, I want to break it down, give you some verses. Number one, I said that they are spiritual creatures, okay? Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, okay? They're specifically called spirits. They are spiritual creatures. Uh, Additionally, they have moral judgment, okay? So, there are a lot of creatures that are even that can even think and move and these kind of things, but they're not moral, right? So your dog, whenever somebody comes up to me and they say, Zach, will my dog be in heaven? What I ask them is, well, did your dog ever disobey you and go to the bathroom on the carpet? If so, your dog is in hell. And of course, I'm just joking. My point is, is that dogs don't have moral judgment like that, okay? But angels do. Second Peter 2, 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, notice they can sin against God and be judged, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Additionally, they are intelligent. They can speak, they can move, they can reason. Matthew 28, 50, uh, sorry, Matthew 28, 5 through 7, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. 
Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So you see an angel here speaking and giving direction and reasoning and working through a process, okay? Now, we also need to know with angels is that they don't have physical bodies, okay? So you typically are not going to be able to see them. But there are times that they can take some sort of form where they can be seen, or God somehow opens your eyes to where you can actually see kind of what's going on in the spiritual realm. So you'll have times in Scripture where uh, somebody doesn't see an angel, and they look up, and all of a sudden the angel just kind of appears there, and they're able to now see it, whereas previously they weren't able to. Or someone will look up on the mountains and see God's heavenly host, whereas previously they were not able to see them. So somehow God can either open your eyes to see angels or they can take on some sort of form where they can be seen, but because they are spiritual beings, they don't have physical bodies. It's not like you're going to go out to get your mail out of the mailbox and like trip over an angel or something like that, okay? Now, are there different kinds of angels mentioned in Scripture? There are. Again, we don't, we don't know uh, what to do with all of this. Uh, if you look in Judaism, if you look in the Middle Ages, they have long lists of different classes of angels and different kinds of angels and different names of angels, and the Bible doesn't go into that much detail, but it does give us a few different types, it seems like, of angels. The first are called cherubim. You've probably heard of that. Cherubim. The uh, Hebrew word, cherev, is the word for sword. So a cherubim, it would be the plural for like swordsmen. They're seen as kind of these guardians, all right? They're almost like watchdog, guardian, protector angels, okay? They're talked about, uh, for example, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Scripture, God is said to travel on them, or they are uh, seen as kind of like his chariot. Uh, they are pictured on top of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And so you do see cherubim in several different places in Scripture, but they seem to be those who guard uh, and do these kind of things. Now, another type of angel is mentioned uh, in the Scriptures, the seraphim. The seraphim, they're only mentioned in Isaiah 6, where they worship God, and one specifically comes and touches a coal to Isaiah's lips to cleanse his speech, to cleanse him, to get him ready for his prophetic ministry. God's putting his words in his mouth, that kind of idea. Uh, but that's where you see the seraphim. The, the, the name, interestingly enough, means burning ones, burning ones, Okay. So cherubim, seraphim, uh, we're given uh, the name of some type of angel, uh, angel class, angel genus or species, I don't know, uh, some type of angels called living creatures. They're mentioned in Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, and they worship God continually. That's what they do. Now, they're almost seen, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense at all, they're, they're angels, but they're almost seen as like the animals of the heavenly realm. Uh, what you see, for example, in Revelation is you've got these living creatures and they have different faces. They'll have the face of a man and the face of an eagle and the face of these different animals. I think the idea there is that they represent how all creation should be worshiping God. Okay, everything on heaven, or I'm sorry, everything that flies in the heavens, everything on earth, everything under the earth. There's this idea that all creation should worship God, and I think that's represented by these what are called living creatures. Now, is there some type of rank amongst the angels? It seems like there are. Again, we, we, it seems like there is. Again, we don't know everything that we would want to know about this. I don't know if that means there's like corporal angels and like a staff sergeant angel and a lieutenant. I don't know how far that goes. But you do have some angels called archangels. Or Jeff makes fun of me. He calls them archangels. And I tell him, you, you wouldn't say Noah's arch, all right, which has nothing to do with arches. I just want to win the argument. But uh, archangels or archangels, Michael, for example, is called that. I don't know if, what that means. I don't know if that means like Michael w steps into a room and all the other angels are like, attention on deck, and they all stand up and salute. I, I have no idea. But it seems to be that there are some, there's some type of rank uh, amongst the angels, okay? 
All right, now, let's move into some interesting facts about angels. Number one, there are a lot of angels, myriads and myriads. We don't know how many, but Jesus will say things like this, Matthew 26, 53, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That is a lot of angels, okay? However, though there are a lot of angels, there are only two mentioned by name in Scripture explicitly. There's an angel named Michael, who seems to be some sort of fighter, some sort of warrior. And there's an angel named Gabriel, who uh, delivers messages, okay? Now, outside of the Bible, we have other names from angels and other types of Jewish literature and these kind of things. So in the book of Tobit, which we don't have in the Bible, that's in the Apocrypha that Catholics would have in between the Old and New Testaments of their Bible. There's a book called Tobit, and there's an angel there named Raphael, okay? If you've ever wondered where the famous painter Raphael got his name. They didn't just say, oh, here's a cool Italian-sounding name. They're Roman Catholic, and so they're familiar with the story, and uh, they would have been familiar with the name Raphael. Uh, In the uh, book of uh, Enoch, there is another angel named Uriel, for example. And then elsewhere in Judaism, you've got all kinds of other names. But in the Bible, you get Michael and Gabriel specifically as their names. Now, what gender are angels? Okay? What gender are angels? I know that's an interesting question. What do you think? Ah, very good. I'm hearing a lot of answers that sound right. Let's just all combine them together. So, a few things. All the angels mentioned in Scripture explicitly are male. Specifically, in Genesis 6, they go and somehow mess, uh, somehow be inappropriate with human women. In Judaism, they're seen as male. In the book of Enoch, there actually describes an angel in great detail. And I won't go into that detail, but let's just say they are very explicitly described as being male. Now, in one sense, you could say that they're neither male nor female because they don't have bodies, right? They're, they're spiritual beings. But in Jewish thinking, they're kind of seen as spiritually male, okay? You don't have this idea of female angels in Scripture. So what this means is, if I come over to your house around Christmas time, and I look at the top of your Christmas tree, and I see a female angel... You're going to hear from me, all right? I'm going to say, get a biblical Christmas tree topper. No female angels. So they're either neuter, genderless, or they're most often described as somehow being spiritually male, even though they don't have physical bodies, Uh, but they are not female. That's interesting, okay? Don't call your wife an angel or don't call my little daughter an angel. When you say, oh, she looks like just a little angel, I think you mean she looks like a terrifying warrior man. That's how I take that, okay? That's number three, what gender are angels? Number four, angels are not cute. They're scary and awesome. Sorry, precious moments. Sorry, little naked baby angels, little cherubs and these kind of things. That's not what an angel looks like. In Scripture, when an angel shows up, people freak out. They start shaking, getting terrified, and a lot of them fall down and try to worship them. Sometimes they're depicted as having swords. Sometimes they're depicted as being on fire. They're terrifying. They are not cute. They are not sweet, okay? If I'm feeling attacked by the devil, the last thing I need is a little precious moments angel on my shoulder who's just going to get beat up. Okay? That's not what I need. They're seen as scary and awesome in the Bible. Number five, this is really important. Angels can only be in one place at one time. They are not omnipresent. One of the things you have to get out of your mind is it's not as though you've got God and then the devil is like just below him in power. They're infinitely different. God is all-powerful. He's almighty. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's infinite. The devil is simply a created being. He's a powerful created being. He's a smart created being, but he's still just a created being. Angels are not everywhere. That's why I say if somebody says they're feeling attacked by the devil, they probably don't mean the devil himself. 
He has bigger fish to fry than you or I. He's dealing with Billy Graham or somebody, all right? Somebody that's a higher target. Uh, we're probably getting one of the, uh, the devil's minions, all right? Some sort of demon. Angels can only be one place at one time. Let me show you this really weird, interesting passage. Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me, this is an angel talking, <clears throat> for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now let me tell you what's going on. Daniel has been praying for God to answer his prayer, and an angel shows up and basically says, hey, I'm sorry I'm late. I got into a fight with a demon over Persia. That's what he says. Have you ever wondered that maybe your prayer is hindered because an angel still has to travel? That's what's going on in this text. What we learn from this text, though, that I think is really important is that angels are not everywhere. They're not omnipresent. They can only be at one place at one time. It seems that they can change their size a bit, but they are not uh, beyond the bounds of space and time like God is. Number six, do people have guardian angels? Do people have individual guardian angels? What do you think? Somebody say yes and somebody say no and y'all fight each other, like verbally in front of everybody, okay? So here, here's, here's what seems to be the case. It doesn't seem to be the case that the Bible teaches that you have one angel assigned to you for your whole life, but it does seem like God can assign an angel to protect you at least for a season. So to quote Wayne Grudem, angels play zone, not man to man, okay? <laughs> And so uh, the idea is, you know, Jesus talks about, uh, the, when he talks about the little children, he says their angels always stand before his Father in heaven, these kind of things. I think the idea is that God absolutely can assign an angel to protect you. But that doesn't mean it's like uh, it's a beautiful life or whatever where you just have one guardian angel your whole life. But it does mean that God can assign an angel to help protect you, maybe for a season, maybe for a long time. So that can be an encouragement to us. But that's about all the Bible's going to say about that. You'll see God send angels a lot of times for particular situations, Right? So like Daniel being in the lion's den, an angel comes and closes the lion's mouths, that kind of idea. Uh, but do we have an individual guardian angel? You probably have seasons where you do have some angel assigned to you, but that doesn't mean it's, it's like the same one. It's not like uh, they just have to be with you until you die and they can't go anywhere else or something like that. They're not a chauffeur. Okay. Number seven, we do not turn into angels when we die. That's super important. Guess what we are? Humans. Guess what we'll always be? Humans. Okay. So the biblical portrait of what happens to us after we die, where we spend eternity, is not like what a lot of people think. A lot of us kind of think that we turn into an angel, and we float up to heaven, and we play a harp. You know, even Tim, he's not even allowed to play a guitar. He has to play a harp in heaven. And there's always elevator music playing, and heaven's a place where a golfer never hits a slice, and a fisherman never misses a catch. And it's, that's kind of what we have, this idea of heaven, but that's not the biblical portrait. The biblical portrait is that what God is going to do is he is going to, re, he's going to resurrect our bodies, and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth like Eden was. When mankind sinned and everything became broken, God's plan was not to scrap, scrap everything he just made and move to plan B and just suck everybody out of here up into heaven. The idea with Eden is that heaven is on earth. God is dwelling with man. Everything's good. But when sin happens, heaven and earth, in a sense, become separated. And so the hope is that through Christ bringing redemption, that one day we'll be resurrected. And the Bible teaches there is a new heavens and a new earth. So no, we do not turn into angels when we die. You'll hear that kind of stuff sometimes. Um, when somebody passes away, and it's, I think it's actually unhelpful. I don't find that to be encouraging. I find it to be discouraging. If you turn into an angel, there's no salvation for you biblically because Jesus was incarnated as a human, not an angel. So if you are not a human, there's no salvation for you if you sin, okay? Number eight, angels do not marry, okay? You're never gonna see an, like an angel shotgun wedding in the new heavens and new earth, 
Not going to happen, okay? Matthew twenty-two thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Okay, when the Bible says that we're like the angels in heaven, in this sense, it means that we will not be, that we do, that we will not be married in eternity. We do not get married in eternity. Marriage is a down here kind of thing because we need that to fulfill what God has given us, to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, etc. But that's not something uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Number nine, this one might be very interesting to you. A lot of people don't know this. In the Bible, angels are assigned to certain nations to help watch over them. So can nations have some sort of angel backing them, helping them, or hurting them? Biblically, yes. God, in Jewish thinking, is the one that has Israel as his possession. He watches over Israel directly, whereas he's assigned angels to watch over the other nations. Look at Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Again, sons of God is a reference, uh, in this case, just to other spiritual beings, meaning angels. That's different than Jesus being the son of God. Okay? So what's interesting is this is kind of the idea in the Bible. God is watching over Israel. He assigns angels to other nations. And when mankind falls and there is this rebellion, you know what those angels do instead of helping those nations? They have those nations worship them. And that's where you get idolatry. That's where you get false worship. That's where you get demon things. To worship anything other than the biblical, historical, Trinitarian God of the Bible in Jewish thinking and in New Testament thinking is worshiping a demon. There are no other gods, so when you're worshiping other spiritual things that are not God himself, you are worshiping something demonic. Let me say it stronger. Allah is a demon. Ganesh is a demon. Thor is a demon. Shiva is a demon. You worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you worship something evil. That's it. Those are your only two options, okay? So what these angels do that are assigned to these different nations, they seem to, in Jewish thinking, when they've rebelled against God, they try to turn that nation into doing what is evil instead of what is good. You see the same idea in the book of Revelation. If you look at the first part of the book of Revelation, there are all these letters written to the what of the churches? To the angel of the church at Thyatira, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church. That's that Jewish thinking. In the same way that God has somehow assigned angels to different nations, he has also somehow assigned angels to different churches. I don't know if that means we have a parkway angel or not. I'm not gonna speculate. But you do see something about God assigning angels not just to help individuals, but to help groups of people in the, in the Bible. Again, I told you this was weird. Number 10, angels are often seen as composing a heavenly court whereby they take orders from Yahweh. In the ancient Near East, if you were a king, you would have a court. You would have uh, advisors, and you would have uh, wise men, and you'd have these kind of people. That way, as you tried to rule your kingdom, you would get advice, and you would bounce ideas off of them. Now, that's not the same way with God. God's not getting advice from angels. It's not like he doesn't know something. But a lot of times, the way he's portrayed as making decisions is sitting amongst a divine council. Let me give you these passages. Psalm 82.1, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods. Again, that just means angels, lowercase g. There's only one God. Don't get weird with this. In, Jew in Jewish thinking, gods is just a term for spiritual beings. That doesn't mean like the God, capital G. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Psalm 89.7, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Those are angels and awesome above all who are around him. Look at this passage, 1 Kings 22, 19, 19 through 22. And uh, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. 
Is God sovereign even over evil angels, even over deceiving angels? To quote Luther, is the devil God's devil? Yes, God is that sovereign. The devil is bad, he's evil, he opposes God, but he opposes God on a leash, a leash established by God himself, okay? Verse 11, or verse 11. (laughs) Everything I've been saying is scripture, no. Uh, Number 11. Angels are seen as having some type of authority over certain things in the elemental world. Revelation 16.5, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say. What does that mean? I don't know. Revelation 14.8, and another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. The author of Revelation just says that like we're supposed to know what that means. Apparently his original audience does, but he's like, what angel? Oh, the one that has authority over fire. Oh, okay. That was, that was the one I was wondering about. Well, no, I don't know what that means. There you go. Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, those are demons in that passage, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What Paul is saying there is that if you try to go back to the Mosaic law, that you're actually putting yourself under the power of what is evil. To go back to the Mosaic law as a Christian is to forsake Christ, period. Let me say it stronger. Legalism is demonic. Legalism is demonic. It's not, I think we think legalism is a safe kind of way to sin but it actually rejects the grace of God, okay? Now, what do angels do? Number one, they glorify God. God created everything to glorify him, so that's everything's job. They glorify God, Revelation 5, 11 through 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, okay? Again, I've got to go fast, so if you say, man, Zach, tell a joke. I don't have time for that right now. I've just got to read a bunch of stuff. Number two, they protect us. Did you know that God has angels protect us? That's part of their job. Psalm 91, 11 through 12. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay? Number three, angels remind us that the unseen world is real. This is different than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of Jews that Jesus interacts with, and they actually deny that there were any such thing as angels. Acts 23, 8, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay, angels remind us that there is more going on behind the scenes than just what we see. There is a spiritual reality to the world as well as a physical reality. And by the way, let me just say this. I think this is interesting. How do you account for the fact that in every culture you have people that are scared of haunted houses or have some sort of spiritual experience or have some sort of paranormal activity, even that aren't Christians, even that don't know anything about the Bible, I think it's because there are spiritual things going on in the world. And it's not that your house is haunted, for say, by grandma, but rather that maybe uh, you're being spiritually attacked, okay? Number four, angels are examples of how we should follow God. Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that prayer, we're saying, God, would you reestablish your reign on earth as it is in heaven where your will is obeyed directly and there is no opposition? Angels carry out God's plans. I'm going to have to just skip over the text for this. You've got it written down on your handout. But they bring messages, okay, right? So uh, Gabriel talks to Mary about the birth of Jesus. Number two, they bring destruction. God will send an angel to uh, kill uh, people, to protect Israel, to protect his people. Uh, They proclaim Jesus is coming, okay? There's a voice of an archangel that will proclaim Jesus is coming, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I don't think that there is a secret rapture that nobody knows about, because according to this text, there is a shout and a voice and a trumpet. It's very obvious when Christ comes, okay? 
Uh, D, they war against demonic forces. Revelation 12, 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. That's the devil. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they do many other things. Angels are servants of God who worship him, and he uses them in several different ways. Now, what should be our relationship to angels? And then we'll spend the rest of our time talking about things that uh, are awful, demons, okay? A few, what should be our relationship to angels? Let me mention a few things. When we worship, we join in with the angels who are worshiping God. When we get together on a Sunday morning and we hear the Bible taught and we take communion and we sing worship songs, we are joining in something much bigger that's going on. That's really exciting. That we're not just there singing so that our hearts feel good. We're joining in with what the angels are already doing and praising God. This is why, and I do not have time to explain this today, so do not ask me. This is why in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about women having head coverings in the church, it says, because of the angels. The idea is that the angels are sensitive to how we worship because they're worshiping with us. Okay? I won't explain what that means. <clears throat> I will one-on-one, -on -one, but not today. Number two, angels are always watching us. That's an encouragement. I think when we're scared, it's a reminder that the spiritual world is real. And I think it, angels provide a, a chance for us to thank God when we're protected by something. When we almost get into a car wreck, but we don't. There was a time when I was a little kid where a hammer fell off a roof where someone was working and it fell right beside me and almost hit me right in the head. It's a chance where we stop and we thank God. We don't thank the angel. We don't talk to angels. We don't have this kind of relationship with angels. We thank God for maybe of sending an angel to protect us, okay? Let's talk about some warning about angels. Number one, never worship, pray to, or seek the appearance of angels, okay? Never worship, pray to, or seek the appearance of angels. Revelation 19.10, when an angel shows up, the author of Revelation says, then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When someone bows down to worship an angel, the angels constantly say, hey, you're going to get us in trouble here. You're going to get us in trouble. Stand up. I'm here to help. I'm not God. Don't worship me. Okay? Again, they're creatures, so we should never worship, pray to, or seek the appearance of angels. Number two, do not have an unhealthy curiosity with angels. Do not have an unhealthy curiosity. You can be interested in this topic. You can study it biblically. But again, our primary focus is on Jesus and the gospel, not on any other peripheral theological topic. Everybody that I've ever met that thinks of themselves as kind of an angel expert is super weird. Okay? I'll just say it that way. Okay. Number three, this one's important. Beware of receiving false doctrine from angels. Both Mormons and Muslims get their doctrine from quote-unquote an angel. An angel comes to Muhammad in the 600s and gives him new doctrine, and you get Islam, all right? And quote-unquote angel comes to Joseph Smith in the 1800s in New York, who is illiterate, and he gives him new doctrine, okay? And so you get false doctrines and false teaching from angels delivering new messages about the Bible that are not true. The Bible warns us about that in advance. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, that's meaning he is to be condemned. So you need to realize uh, the Bible is, we have the Bible as it is, we have the gospel as it is. Jesus promises that his church will never be overcome, that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. So new Christianities are just recycled forms of old heresies, okay? They're just recycled forms of old heresies, never received doctrine from angels. We already have the Bible. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. for no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So do I think some sort of angel went to Joseph Smith or uh, Muhammad? Yes, but it's an evil angel. It's called a demon, all right? Those are demonic religions. I don't know how to say it stronger than that. They follow Satan. They do not follow God. You follow God in historic, biblical, orthodox, normal Christianity, okay? 
And then lastly, a note on angels appearing today. Could there be an angel that appears today somehow or visits you or something? I, I think it's possible, but I think it's very unlikely. In the entire history of humanity and throughout the entire Bible, thousands and thousands of years, they only appear a few times to a few select individuals. So I don't think that this is something that you should expect. I don't want to say that it's impossible, uh, but it, it doesn't seem to be something that would be necessary or needed. Okay? Angels. Thumbs up. Now time to move to demons. Thumbs down. Okay? What are demons? I figured I would describe it to you biblically instead of like conjuring one up or something. I figured you'd probably appreciate that. Let me give you a definition of demons. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. Okay? So all a demon is is a fallen angel. It's not a third kind of thing. It's not like you have humans and angels and demons. You have humans and angels, and when humans rebel, they're in rebellion to God, and when angels rebel, they're in rebellion to God, and so a demon is simply a term that's used for evil angels that rebelled, okay? Where did demons come from? They were angels who rebelled against God before the fall of man. Let me give you some passages. Jude 1.6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we see in Jude that angels somehow disobeyed God. That's probably a reference here by here to Genesis 6, by the way. Uh, and therefore, God has uh, imprisoned them. 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So you see several places in the Bible where it says that angels fell and disobeyed God, and so God is waiting to judge them. Who is Satan? Okay. He is seen as kind of the leader or the prince of the demons. He has many names, all right? The name Satan, by the way, means enemy. Satan in Hebrew means enemy or adversary. Uh, the word devil, diabolos, the word devil means accuser, okay? He's called many other names in Scripture. He's called uh, Beelzebul. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the serpent and many others, okay? That's who he is. He's, he's the leader of the demons, if you want to say it that way. He is seen as kind of a spiritual prosecuting attorney. Let me read you two interesting passages. Job 1, 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. What the devil is doing is accusing. That's what he does day and night. He accuses us. He accuses us. He says to God, look at Job. Of course he worships you. You've given him all these good things. If you take him away, he'll curse you to your face. He'll curse you to your face. He does that in Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He is accusing the high priest. He is accusing Israel for their sins against God. Number three, he is the leader of the demons and he is the originator of sin. Okay, let me just say something real quick. The Bible does not give us a whole lot of information of where the devil comes from or what this fall was before mankind. A lot of it's speculation, okay? There are two really big passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 20, uh, 28, uh, and we're going to read them. And what the, here's what's going on in these passages. I have to explain these or it won't make sense. Remember how I said that a lot of times in nations there's some sort of spiritual influence behind the nation, that uh, God assigns angels to different nations? You remember when I said that just a few minutes ago? Everybody shake your head, because if not, that means I'm a terrible teacher, okay? What's going to go on in these passages is the prophet is going to describe different worldly leaders but he's going to describe them in language that's too strong just for them. He's almost going to say, you know what, worldly leader? When you act the way you act, it reminds me of somebody else. 
That's what he's going to say in these passages. So let's read this. It's about worldly leaders, the king of Tyre or whoever, okay? Uh, But the language that's used is too strong for just a human king. He's somehow saying what you're doing, king, is demonically influenced. That's what he's saying, okay? So look at these language here. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, okay? The Latinized word of O day star, which you get sometimes, for example, in the King James Version, is where you get the word Lucifer. That's the idea of a day star, okay? That's not his name. That's just a reference to day star, but that's where it comes from is this verse. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of, the, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Here Isaiah is condemning the king of Babylon, but look at the kind of language he does, he uses. He's saying, what you've done, O king of Babylon, reminds me of another person that did the same thing, who wanted to exalt themselves, who had a lot of pride, who wanted to make themselves great, who wanted to be like God, who wanted to do these kind of things. And he says, you remind me of somebody else who did that, king of Babylon. You know who it is? The devil. Ezekiel 28 says the same thing about the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, rise, uh, raise, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Listen to this, what he says about the king of Tyre. And tell me if this could be literally true of the physical human king of Tyre. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. I don't know how to say that one, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointing guardian cherub, anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Dear King of Tyre, I remember when you were in the Garden of Eden. I remember when you were beautiful and blameless, and then you sinned and you were cast down to earth. That is stronger than just the King of Tyre. In both these passages, the prophets are talking about human kings, but they're saying, your evil action reminds me of somebody else. Reminds me of somebody else who did this in a much higher way than you. Okay? We get a few more passages talking about the fall of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. John 8, 44, Jesus says to the religious people, right, not the broken sinners, he says to the religious uh, stuck-up, Mosaic law-following, righteous church people, he says this, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to 
devour. So, angels are created beings by God. Some of them rebelled against God and sinned, and he cast them down, and they are awaiting judgment. The devil is the leader of those, uh, those angels. And those were a bunch of weird passages, and I realized this is a difficult topic, so let's keep wrestling with it together. Okay, now let's talk about what do Satan and demons do. Here's just a simple description of what they do. They try to destroy every work of God. That's what they do. They're like acid. Anything that God is for, they want to be against, okay? We saw them tempt Adam and tempt Jesus. Uh, they lie, uh, and de- they lie to and deceive people. You'll see that kind of stuff. Lies in salvation, lies in sin. They'll tell somebody that's saved that they're not. They'll t- tell somebody that's not saved that they are, these kind of things. Tempt, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, or anything else to harm Christians and to hinder our witness and usefulness. That's what demons do. They just want to oppose anything that God is about, Okay. We talked about this. If you want more information, you've got to listen to the uh, sermon out of Ephesians 6, uh, uh, what is it, 10 through 20, I think is what it is, where we talk about spiritual warfare, and we talk about some of the ways and some of the schemes that the devil uses to try to attack us, uh, but uh, they're just try to oppose God at every point. In First Enoch uh, chapter 8, I want to share something with you. That's not in the Bible. Okay, I'm not saying that should be in the Bible. It is just a, a very familiar book in ancient Judaism, something that many Jews might have been familiar with. In First Enoch chapter 8, fallen angels teach mankind uh, how to do, in a sense, more advanced sins. So part of what the fallen angels are doing, are in, uh, they're encouraging sin. All right? So they teach mankind, for example, to make weapons so that they can go to war with one another. They teach the women to make cosmetics. Again, there's nothing wrong with wearing makeup. The idea in context is that they're seducing people that they shouldn't be seducing, all right? Uh, They teach them about sorcery and astrology. There's actually another ancient Jewish text where it is fallen angels that help teach and encourage abortion, which I find to be fascinating, that it is actually satanic, okay? But the idea there is that fallen angels, demons, want to wreak havoc. They want to oppose God. They want to oppose his uh, followers, Now, let's go over some misconceptions about Satan and demons, okay? These are misconceptions. So if I say something like, uh, uh, the devil is good, that's a misconception. That doesn't mean I actually do agree with the devil being good. I'm saying that's a misconception. So let me give you a few examples of those. Number one, there's this misconception that says that basically God is not really in control of the devil or demons, okay? They constantly are thwarting God. They're constantly uh, not under his control. We have this idea to think that, in a sense, God and the devil are kind of boxing, and we know God's going to win. He's stronger, but every now and again, the devil gets in like a good left hook and kind of catches him off guard. You know, mankind falls in the garden, and God is surprised or something like that, and so we just need to realize that's not the case biblically. It's not the case biblically. It's not like the force in Star Wars where you have the light side and the dark side and basically they're the same strength or something like that. Again, the devil is God's devil. The devil is a pawn in God's hands. The devil has to ask for permission before he again makes uh, Job sick. And God says, yeah, but you can't kill him and the devil has to obey, okay? So there's an infinite gap between God who is infinite and a mere creature, The devil's powerful, he's smart, but he's not even on the same spectrum as God, okay? Another misconception about Satan and demons is that they can read your thoughts or they can tell the future. We should not take attributes that alone belong to God and start ascribing them to the devil or demons. Again, they're just creatures. They're just creatures. We have a tendency to think that the devil can read our thoughts or somehow can tell the future. I don't think that's the case. I think that they can watch and observe what's going on and make a good guess about the future, 
I think that they can watch and, and realize every time a beautiful woman walks by, you check her out and you sin, and then all of a sudden that demon could know that you struggle with lust. But that's not them reading your mind. That's just them being good observers. Now, here's why I think this. It's not like there's a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt know that the devil can't read your mind. Rather, what we see in the Bible is we see texts that ascribe certain attributes to Yahweh alone, and it seems like we're, all, we're supposed to think that only God can do those things. Let me give you a few examples, okay? 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that passage is not even about angels. We're talking about Saul and these kind of things. But the point of this passage is that there is something unique about God and that he looks at the heart. He can read the mind, whereas it seems like creatures cannot do that. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Now look at this. This is describing something unique about God. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In this text, it seems that it is unique for God to be the one to declare the end from the beginning. He says, I'm unique, there's nobody like me. Oh, and by the way, one of the things that makes me unique and makes nobody like me is that I can tell the future because he has declared and ordained the future. Another misconception is that the devil is everywhere. Again, the devil is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. Only God can do things outside space and time like that. Uh, we saw elsewhere that uh, angels or demons have to travel. It seems like they can change their shape a little bit, but they, they have to travel. They, they, uh, it takes time for them to go somewhere. And so the devil's not everywhere. He's not like air. So when we say that the devil's attacking us, we probably don't mean the devil himself. He probably has bigger fish to fry than you or me. He probably attacks like Billy Graham or somebody that's, you know, big time. For us, we're probably getting one of his minions, one of his helpers. Another misconception we have about demons is that we should be terrified of them, okay? What's interesting is, is in the Bible, you don't have people really showing a lot of just being terrified of demons. You see them tricking people. You see them... Uh, you know, harming people, you see them being a nuisance, but you don't see what you see in the movies of heads spinning around and these kind of things. And so the reason we're afraid of demons is mainly because of Hollywood, okay? Here's what you need to realize. In the Bible, demons are afraid of Jesus. They're terrified of Jesus. That should really, really, really encourage you. The joke I always like to tell is that when we get together to try to watch a scary movie, we watch a movie about demons, when demons want to get together, right, they get together on a little demon Friday night, have some little demon popcorn, and they get together, the movie that they watch that terrifies them is The Passion of the Christ. They are terrified. When Jesus shows up, they say things like, please don't torture us yet. Can we please go into the pigs? Please just don't hurt us yet. We, we have more time before we get hurt, right? Those are the kind of things they say. So you should be encouraged if you know Christ. He is infinitely stronger than demons. Number five, another misconception about uh, the devil and demons is that we should have some sort of strange relationship with them. You don't need to talk to demons. You don't need to have to wear garlic uh, around your neck. They're not vampires. Okay, you don't have to know some sort of mantra to get them to go away. You don't have to yell at them in a loud voice. If you want to know how to do spiritual warfare, the Bible would say, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Repentance and faith and asking Jesus to help is how you fight demons. Listen to that spiritual warfare sermon for more info on that, okay? Another misconception people have about demons is that we should have some sort of unhealthy interest and become experts in this area, okay? 
Um, don't do that. Your main focus in, Christian, in Christianity should be on the gospel, on Christ, on the triune God that we serve who loves us, who's redeeming all things. That should be your focus. You don't want to become an expert. Everybody that I've ever met who sees themselves as an expert on this area is kind of weird. All right? That's, I'll, ju- I'll just say it. Okay? Uh, and so you, you don't want to be an expert. You want to know what the Bible says about it, but this is not our main focus. All right? When you start making catalogs of demons and these kind of things and all their names and that kind of stuff, I think you've probably gone uh, beyond Scripture in that. Another misconception is that the devil made me do it. Uh, people sometimes think that with sin. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit dwelling in you, and so you can resist the wiles of the devil. Typically, when we think, quote, the devil made me do it, it's actually just our own sin. Uh, okay, so for believers, the devil can never make you do it. For unbelievers, you can be strongly uh, demonically oppressed, but most of that sin is just your own flesh if you're not a believer. Okay? Another misconception, what does the devil look like? When we think of the devil, we have a tendency to think of the devil as if he looks like the uh, kind of cartoon character on the front of like deviled ham or something like that at the grocery store. Or if you've ever been to Torchy's Tacos, Torchy's Tacos is delicious, okay? You can eat there even though they've got a little demon logo. Don't worry about that. Their tacos are amazing, okay? Their good tacos are a gift from God, not from the devil, okay? So eat at Torchy's Tacos. Uh, they, they'll pay me 50 bucks, I'm sure, for saying that in this uh, class. But here's what the devil looks like. We have a tendency to think. We have a tendency to think that, first of all, he's red, right? It's like hell camouflage. It's like fire camouflage. He's got a blend in. So we think of him as being red. We think of him as having a little whippy tail with a little point at the end, I guess telling people where to go or something like that with it. And for some reason, he always kind of looks like Dracula. He always has this weird kind of wispy French mustache, and he looks like Snidely Whiplash. He looks like uh, he should be tying a little girl to the train tracks somewhere or something like that. He has horns for some reason, and he always has this big pitchfork, this big trident, all right? I don't know why he has that, maybe for just grilling really large steaks in hell, which, by the way, the steaks in hell would be well done, Okay? In heaven, you'd have like medium rare steaks or something like that, but in, uh, in hell, they'd be well done. That is not what the devil looks like. Again, nobody's tempted to follow that ridiculous cartoonish character. He looks beautiful. He looks tricky. He looks seductive. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Look at this next part. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Why is it that Mormons are so nice, and they come up to your door, and they're dressed nice, and they just seem so kind? Why is it that Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, and they're dressed nice, and they just, they're so kind? Why is it that you have such a kind Buddhist neighbor or something like this? Look at me. This is really important. It's because the Bible says that they're simply doing what their father, the devil, does. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light, but really he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So are these cults. When a Mormon comes to your door or something like that, that is a, the devil appearing as an angel of light. I don't mean literally. I mean that's a person. But I mean they're doing what the devil does. The devil tries to trick people by appearing as an angel of light. So cults and sex and false religion and these kind of things, they do the same thing. They do the same thing. Okay, let me end with a summary. So, here's what we need to know. God created everything for his glory, and uh, he created two moral types of beings. He created humans. We have rationality. We're moral. We can worship God, etc. Uh, and he created, created angels. Now, what's interesting is you have uh, fallenness in both. You have humanity that rebels against God, and you have angels that rebel against God. Uh, some angels rebel against God first, and in fact, one of them tricks Eve into eating the fruit, and mankind rebels against God and falls as well. But here's the good news. The good news of the Bible isn't really about angels. 
The good news of the Bible is about the Son of God who comes to destroy the works of the devil, who lives the life we should have lived, dies on a cross to take the punishment we deserve, is raised from the dead, and, is in, and inaugurates the beginning of the end times kingdom of God where he's putting the world back to rights, where God is getting us back to Eden. He's moving us from garden to new Jerusalem, and Christ is our hope. He is our satisfaction. He is the one we love. He is the one that fights against the enemy for us. Any fear you have when it comes around this area, you just need to be encouraged that the Bible says things like that he will soon crush Satan under our feet which the Bible already promised a long time ago in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and we have that in Christ. If you know Christ, you are protected. If you know Christ, uh, you have a defense. If you know Christ, you have hope. So uh, let me pray for us and, uh, and then we will be done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is true, and uh, I thank you that you love us. I ask that you would uh, just protect us. I pray for anybody in here who feels spiritually attacked. I pray that you would give them a sense of peace, and they might remember who they are in Christ, in the gospel, that the enemy's condemnations for those who know Christ are not true. And so I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would bless our church. I pray that you would protect our church from spiritual attack. And uh, I thank you for this encouragement here. Uh, we thank you for the times that uh, we get to, to worship and join with the angels in worshiping you. That's amazing. So we ask that you'd help us, that you'd guide us, that you'd protect us. In Christ's name, amen.